Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history and the 2023 winner of an award of merit for excellence from the Connecticut League of History Organizations, brought to you by Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Mary Donahue. From the rural backwater of Heartland, Connecticut in 1773, Asher Benjamin would rise to become one of the most important figures of American architecture. In addition to training as a skilled Finnish carpenter, he published the first architectural guidebooks, the how-to books, by an American-born author. These went through many editions and leave a lasting record of how federal period craftsmanship could build the many stunning churches and homes from the earliest years of our country. He may have even held the first architectural school in America. More about that in this episode. Today's episode is inspired by an upcoming symposium sponsored by Connecticut Landmarks to celebrate the work and legacy of Asher Benjamin, one of the most influential members of his generation of architects. Take in a full day of learning and the gorgeous fall foliage at the site of his first formal architectural commission, the Phelps Hathaway House and Garden in Suffield, Connecticut. The symposium is on October 7, 2023. To find out more and to register, go to ctlandmarks.org. Today, my guests are William Renaro, author of Asher Benjamin, American architect, author, and artist, published by Outskirts Press in 2021, and Lynn Mervesh, site administrator for the Phelps Hathaway House and Garden in Suffield, Connecticut. Mr. Renaro is one of the speakers for the Asher Benjamin Symposium. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mary. So nice to be here. Hi, Mary. Thank you for having us. Bill, I wanted to start out with you. Over his lifetime, Asher Benjamin lives in almost all of the New England states. He lives in Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Vermont. What was his early life like in Connecticut? Well, I mean, there's not a lot of documentary evidence to support it, but we can certainly figure that life in pre-revolutionary Heartland, Connecticut, uh, was probably rather mundane, to say the least which really makes Asher Benjamin's achievements as an architect and author later on really rather remarkable. He had almost no formal education. There was a a, a church, I think the Second Ecclesiological Society in Heartland, that had a, a, a school that probably gave him the equivalent of about a sixth grade education. So we have to figure that Asher Benjamin was something of an autodidact. He was self-taught, and what he was taught, he learned very, very quickly. I think a lot of his education probably came from his work with the apprentice or the master builder as an apprentice for Thomas Hayden uh, once he got to Suffield. Let's talk a little bit about his early Connecticut work. So he's working as an apprentice. He's a he's a builder, finished carpenter type of person. Lynn, he carves these fancy ionic capitals for the 1794 update to the Oliver Phelps House that Connecticut Landmarks opens to the to the public as a museum. So what can you tell us about his work in Suffield? Mary, as Bill mentioned, so little is known. We have very little documentation as to as to exactly what, beside the columns, Asher did. I will say that Oliver Phelps, who was the youngest of 17 children from Windsor, probably had a sweet spot for someone like Benjamin in his heart. He knew what it was like to come up from a more underprivileged background 
and to learn a trade. And I think perhaps maybe through Hayden, if Phelps had any connection with Benjamin, he might have appreciated his hard work. Uh, we again know that um, Benjamin did work under Hayden. Hayden was contract for building a very lavish addition to the Burbank House. It was completed in June 1795. And that's the Phelps Hathaway House now, right? It is. It's an addition that is slightly set back from the Burbank 1761 house, but dramatically different in style. Phelps spared no expenses to have French wallpaper installed. We have the original still hanging in four of the five rooms and contracted young artisans to have the most up and coming and trendy designs that were to be the federal style included in his plans. If you come to the house, now are these Ionic Capitals an interior or an exterior feature? They are exterior. Great. So we're going to have to make a trip specially to see those. But Bill, I also know that he worked a little bit. He did a famous staircase, which is no longer there at the old state house in Hartford. How did he move into such a big civic building from a residential house type of construction? Well, there was a political connection that he actually seemed to have used. And I don't recall all the details of it. I did write about it. But he there was somebody from Suffield that was able to write a letter. Uh, giving him a connection to get the commission at the the state house in Hartford. And of course, once he got there, he discovered Charles Bullfinch. Although Bullfinch was not superintending the building of the state house, it was his first real exposure to federal style architecture and what was coming to New England. So obviously, we all know that he followed Charles Bullfinch very carefully and stylistically uh, throughout the years after. Well, we know that this was a a stone spiral staircase. Was that talked about at the time? Because that sounds pretty complicated to construct. From the sources that I've read, he may have been the only carpenter, builder, housewright, whatever we want to call him at the time. He may have been the only person in New England who had the knowledge to do it. And it came from uh, a guidebook, an English guidebook by someone named Peter Nicholson. And again, the amazing thing about Benjamin is that he were, was able to take that guidebook, understand it, and uh, produce this spiral staircase uh, just from those plans that were in a guidebook from somebody who wrote it 3,000 miles away. He didn't have anybody to confer with because nobody else knew how to do it. So it was he himself actually explains that he probably was the it was probably the first stone spiral staircase in New England. That's amazing because I know I don't have math skills at all. And I do rely on YouTube currently for some things like that, uh, putting furniture together, that kind of thing. So Andrew Benjamin, you know, he just is one of those creative and yet technically proficient guys that, like you said, comes from the off the beaten path in Connecticut. He moves from Connecticut to Greenfield, Massachusetts, and builds several large houses but that's where he publishes his first handbook, The Country Builder's Assistant in 1797. We're not even in the 19th century yet. Tell me about these pattern books. Well, Benjamin would have used pattern books. He would have had exposure to them through Thomas Hayden. It's likely that he Hayden, apparently, when he died in his estate, they found that he possessed several pattern books amongst them was William Payne's uh, book. And Payne 
was a student of Robert Adam. So we think that probably uh, the federal style, which is so closely associated with Robert Adams' neoclassicism, came to Benjamin, you know, through these pattern books. And he must have been using them certainly, you know, when he was working on the addition to the Burbank House. And, you know, he became, you know, very proficient. Uh, again, he had no formal education. So the fact that he was able to take these books and and utilize them on his own with nobody else telling him how to use them is kind of amazing. I think James Gibbs' book uh, from 1728 was probably also a major influence on, on Benjamin. So he's known as the, the first born in America builder to publish a guidebook, a pattern book. And he writes in the beginning of his book in the preface that he's really targeting country builders that don't have access to the grand tour of uh, Europe or trips to London or any any other way to get these designs. So tell us about what you'd see in an Asher Benjamin pattern book if you are a builder and you're opening it up. Well, his intention was he he knew who his audience was going to be. His audience was going to be semi-literate, not very well-educated builders in rural New England. And uh, so he knew that flooding a, a book with text was probably not what was going to work best. He needed clear, large-scale uh, drawings that were understandable to a local builder. And this is the kind of self-awareness that he seemed to have that you know, probably would have been missing. He knew that the English guidebooks were of almost no use to a lot of American country builders. You know, they were filled with designs that would, you know, never be used by an American builder. They were expensive. They were large. They were unwieldy. They they couldn't really be brought to, to uh, work sites. So he wanted to, an efficient little book. In his first book, uh, The Country Builder's Assistant was composed of 30 plates with almost no text. So it was a totally visual kind of education that he was giving his brethren. And he apparently was not happy or satisfied, you know, with the kind of shoddy workmanship that he often saw, probably beginning during his apprenticeship, uh, and then later on when he was on his own. So when you say plates, those are the drawings. And do they, they include measurements, for example? They do. You know, he would always claim that he wasn't married to the proportions that, you know, were outlined, but and, and that there was flexibility, but he included them. And of course, if you're talking about classical design of any sort, proportion and measurement are always going to be, you know, part of the equation and part of what's important. But he, you know, Benjamin was one of these guys that understood that people in the country were going to do what they wanted to do. And that there was a little flexibility in moving away from, you know, the strict proportions that were outlined by Palladio. Now, do those plates, were those drawings that he borrowed from other books to reproduce? Or are how did he arrive at those drawings? Yeah, there's little doubt that he borrowed William Chambers, another Englishman who, um, an English architect who published. Uh, it, it's believed that he probably borrowed from Chambers. And also Payne, who we mentioned earlier. It's interesting to me that they always say that in England, they had more craftsmen and tradesmen and less natural resources. And in the United States, there was a shortage of 
artisans and craftsmen and tradesmen, but plenty of natural resources. So Benjamin always says, apparently, that, you know, you could produce all these designs in stone and brick, but they could also be adapted to wood, which, of course, is such a important and common resource in America as opposed to England. Mm. So... By 1803, Benjamin is living in the big city. He's in Boston, which is pretty cosmopolitan for New England. He's listed in the city directory as a as a housewright, which is a builder, but he's designing churches and houses. When does he cross over, in his own estimation, from a builder to an architect? And what was the difference at the time? Well, I mean, architects, to be called an architect and even Charles Bullfinch wasn't being called an architect in 1803 because he didn't have the formal education that English architects considered requisite for being called an architect. But there, in my mind, there's little doubt he was an architect. But even, as I say, Bullfinch wasn't calling himself an architect. And it wasn't until 1806 that he began, began calling himself an architect, largely because there were other young builder architects coming into the city. Uh, one of them named Peter Banner, who identified himself as an architect in the 1806 Boston directories. And I think this got Benjamin to think, well, you know, he hasn't done anything I haven't done. And perhaps starts to call him, he starts to call himself an architect after 1806. And the first time in any of his guidebooks, he calls himself an architect is, I believe, in 1809 or 1810. Um, so it took him a little while. When did he actually cross over? You know, he was a carpenter, a housewright in in the Connecticut Valley. At some point, he's going to be a design architect. He's not going to be actually working with his hands the way he did. I don't know exactly when that occurred. But I think somebody who spends more of their time in an office designing buildings and churches and so forth, you know, is definitely crossed over. And he did at some point. It's just, it's hard for me to say exactly when that was. How were his family fortunes going? Not well. <laughs> his heyday was about 1806 to 1809. He actually begins competing with Charles Bullfinch, you know, and begins getting commissions ahead of Bullfinch. But after about 1809, you know, more young architects are coming into the city. I mentioned Peter Banner. There was another guy named uh, Simon Willard and a few others as well. So competition gets ramped up for the available commissions. Both Bullfinch and Benjamin start to have a difficult time financially. Bullfinch goes in, had been already, I believe, in bankruptcy. And, and it convinces Benjamin in 1811 to stop being a full-time architect. And he begins running a paint store. Um, a hardware store. And that sustains him sort of, I think, for about 13, 14 years. And then in the eight, 1820s, about 1824, he also declares bankruptcy. So they both go down that road. It just became very difficult for their them to get enough work. You know, I think that's still the case. Architecture is one of those boom bust type of things. It goes along with the economy. It goes along with the building trades, it goes along with what kind of promote self-promotion you can do to get yourself out there as a, as a big name. Now, uh, a building that I just really love that I think is just such a good example of his really fine design work is Center Congregational Church on the New Haven Green, which I think was built in 1814. And that's a building that you can definitely visit today. 
What do we know about that commission? I guess from what I know, and I haven't visited there, I borrowed a photo to you know put in my book. To me, it looks like it was a little more closely associated with the English St. Martin's in the Field uh, Church, sort of more of a, there's a little bit of a Baroque flavor to the spire that I that I see there. But interestingly, you know, he was in Boston and had an acquaintance with Ithiel Town, the New Haven architect, um, when Ithiel Town was very young. This was years before 1814 when he first came to Boston. We don't know if Ithiel Town came to Boston to actually work under or apprentice under Asher Benjamin, or maybe even he came because Benjamin was trying to start an architectural school in Boston. Either way, they had an association. And at some point, probably 1812 or 13, Benjamin gave plans for a church, you know, for Ithiel Town to take back to New Haven. And uh, Ithiel Town superintended the construction of that church. It's just beautiful. It's part of three churches in a row on that tremendous green. So that's that's a must-see in Connecticut. Calling all teachers. Did you know that Connecticut Explored offers a teacher discount? For only $20 a year, you can enjoy access to the magazine of Connecticut history and our e-newsletter. Need interesting books for young readers? Contact Kristen at education at ctexplore.org to stock up on multiple copies of Venture Smith's Colonial Connecticut for your classroom at a discounted rate. Visit ctexplore.org to purchase your subscription, access all our online educational resources, and learn more about Venture Smith's Colonial Connecticut. Interested in reaching an audience of culturally active, lifelong learners? We know just the place. Advertise with Grading the Nutmeg, the award-winning podcast of Connecticut history. Grading the Nutmeg offers a unique platform to showcase your brand to a dedicated and engaged audience of history and culture enthusiasts. It's also budget-friendly. To become a Grading the Nutmeg sponsor, email our ad manager at admanager at ctexplore.org and start advertising with Grading the Nutmeg. And I'm glad you mentioned this uh, first architecture school. There just these tantalizing tidbits about the fact that he may have conducted the country's first architectural school. Do we know anything else about that? Well, <laughs> it's really interesting uh, because, you know, two of the people I leaned on quite heavily, you know, in writing the book, uh, one was Bill Hosley and another one was Jack Quinnen. Even they uh, have some I don't know if disagreement would be the right word or different interpretations about whether the architectural school that he proposed ever actually happened in Windsor, Vermont. He, we know he he wanted to do it because advertisements exist in the early papers from Windsor where he advertised the need for an architectural school. But there are doubts whether it actually happened. We don't know if it did or it didn't. Apparently, when he got to Boston, he again came up had the idea of starting an architectural school. Different opinions abound. It, there's very little documentary evidence to say whether it happened or not, other than we know he had a desire to do it. Boy, that's one of the tough things about writing about Asher Benjamin, is that you didn't have a lot of written correspondence or diaries or letters. There's no big collection, I don't think, somewhere that you could just pull all these answers out. So there's all these little interesting tantalizing tidbits that we know. Something that I thought was unusual was in 1825, he's approached to supervise the building of what we would call in Connecticut a mill town. 
for the Nashua Manufacturing Company. And that is a big project. How does that go? I think it was good because I think for Asher Benjamin, he had a, a fairly large family to support and um, it wasn't working in Boston. He had to do something and put his architectural pursuits sort of to the side and, you know, find a way to financially support his family. And I think it it seemed to accomplish that goal for him for three years. Um, he did, there were two churches, one that that he he uh, built or supposedly designed, one of which was probably his very first uh, Greek revival design. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist anymore. The other church was more of a yeah, it was it was a Greek a Greek design. It's attributed to him by some, but we're, there's much less evidence that you know would support that it was definitely his. That one actually still exists. So you know he went there for three years. He did the job he was paid to do. I think it it got him back into the architectural mainstream in terms of getting him back to Boston where he could do what he wanted to do. That reminds me about the transition from federal style architecture to Greek revival style architecture. And I, I just want to read a little bit from the book about this. Also, this big change in building technology from 1820 to 1835. So you say many pressures brought about changes in the building trades from roughly 1820 to 1835. The rapid change of styles from neoclassical to Greek revival, from Greek to Gothic, etc., advances in technology, including heating systems and indoor toilets, the introduction of new materials, including tin for roofs, decorative iron for railing, and granite for building facades, New building types, such as hotels, railroad stations, warehouses, and factories were in high demand, and the numerous engineering advances associated with canals, dry docks, railroads, and jetties. All of these changes contributed to the growing importance of the architectural profession. So that's really America going from very much of what we think of as the colonial period in Connecticut to this really rapidly expanding new republic. Mm. And how is he coping with that? Is he still making money from his pattern books in addition to design work? Yeah, I don't know if he ever intended his pattern books to be for profit. I think by, I, I make a guess somewhere in the book that his third book, which was largely a repeat of his second book, was probably an attempt to rescue himself financially. It didn't happen because, you know, it was much of the same. But his fourth book, The Greek Revival, was the best thing that happened to Asher Benjamin financially, not architecturally, because from all evidence, he was a much more he was much more comfortable working in the federal style than he ever was in the Greek Revival. But it was his first Greek Revival guidebook, The Practical Architect, published in 1830, that really rescued him and his family uh, financially. Um, this became you know, I think there were 19 printings in the next 21 years. So this was a book that was widely disseminated, passed around, used and sold a lot of books and probably gave uh, Asher Benjamin some stability and his family some financial stability. But as an architect, he just had a lot of trouble letting go of his old style. You know, he he eventually sort of at the end, you know, comes through with with a few successful Greek revival commissions. But he really has a lot of trouble making that transition. You can see his federal style just sort of lingering even in his so-called Greek 
Greek revival uh, commissions. Oh, I think I can identify with this. I think all of us have a hard time like changing our styles to say yeah. the least and becoming uh, continue, trying to continue to be modern. So in his practice, he continues to publish his pattern books and he really designs buildings that we know about to within a couple of years of his death in 1845. Bill, why did you feel that Asher Benjamin really deserved a new appraisal and a full biography? Well, I mean, you talked about it just a little bit about the, the lack of documentation that he left, you know, his heirs and, and historians for the future. I was wondering the same thing, even as I started the project. And uh, almost right away, I I found Abbott Cummings dissertation on Asher Benjamin. He he did his dissertation on Benjamin's books. And he includes in a paragraph a statement about what Asher Benjamin did not leave to the future. The lack of documents, letters, diaries, etc. So it answered my question about why there hadn't been a biography done uh, of Asher Benjamin previously. It also shed doubts on whether whether I was going to be able to, but there's been a lot of scholarly work done on Asher Benjamin. Just nobody had ever really put it all together for a, a full appraisal of his of his life and his work. I don't think there's any doubt that you know this is a guy that you know needs to be you know remembered as a, a major contributor to American architecture in the first half of the 19th century. Ellen, what do you think about that? You helped plan the symposium that's going to talk about Benjamin on this 250th anniversary, I believe. What kind of interest have you seen from both scholars and visitors in his work? Oh, we were just delighted. I had a visit uh, last year from a colleague and we're in the house and my friend is going, oh my gosh, Benjamin is amazing. And I I paused and I thought, well, goodness, I don't know an awful lot about Benjamin. I've been in this house for so long and I think it's time. So we discovered that his birth anniversary was coming up and it seemed like a really wonderful time to shed light on his life and work. And that's when I reached out to so many scholars whose own careers had started with Benjamin, Jack Quinnen, Bill Hosley, so many started their studies using Benjamin. And then there's this large gap until Bill came along that not much work was done on him. So we're hoping the symposium brings together uh, researchers and also younger people who might have an interest in the period again. Bill, what have you found out about his influence in other regions and other states that goes just beyond the New England, sort of the New England bubble? What other places have had that kind of impact from the pattern books? Yeah, it's incredible that, you know, Benjamin himself didn't seem to travel very much at all. I mean, I think he went out of New England maybe once in his life, and that was to New York. But his influence is, he's really a national figure in the sense of, if you're looking at the first half of the 19th century, because New Englanders settled, well, essentially settled most of what is Ohio today. And they took their pattern, they, they came from rural areas like Vermont and parts of Western Massachusetts and even Connecticut. And they traveled West and they took his book with them because they needed a guide to help them build whatever domicile they were going to live in and town they were going to live in. There's even uh, evidence that there were large sections in the Deep South, especially in Mississippi. I don't recall the name of the fellow I identified, uh, but there was a Vermonter who traveled to Mississippi and he took his Asher Benjamin book with him. 
And of course, Benjamin's book was meant to be shared, and it did. It was shared. And, you know, so Benjamin's designs are found in all sorts of places, uh, you know, west of here and south of here. Uh, one difference that we do find between his federal books and his Greek revival books is there are very few full models of buildings in his Greek revival books. He has doors, windows, mantelpieces, etc. You know, and people were free to sort of use what they wanted. You know, they may not have been able, they may not have been able to afford a full, you know, Greek revival house with all the articulation of a of a Doric uh, style temple and so forth. But they could afford a doorway, and that gave their house, which was otherwise a vernacular building, gave it a little style, uh, and its aesthetics changed because of that. So, yeah, Benjamin, Charles Bullfinch was a New Englander, right? Uh, as great an architect as he was, you know, his influence is no greater, really, than Asher Benjamin's when it comes to looking beyond New England. It's funny, as an architectural historian, I have to say that so many of these buildings, because it's such an early period, have been lost or altered. But the fact that he left the pattern books meant that even when I was in college, we had to pour over those pattern books and learn the classical orders and then be able to figure out how he Americanized them. So the publishing part of it really left a, a legacy that can't be understated. And how, Bill, how did he end his life? Well, he got he got married a second time. He had four children by his first wife and four children by his second wife. He ended it, I think, probably a fairly lonely guy. But he had one last flourish architecturally. And I'm I'm trying the Charles what is today the Charles Street Playhouse was really his crowning uh, achievement, I guess, in the Greek revival. Um, and that's in Boston, right? That's in, in Boston on Charles Street, obviously. And, uh, you know, that was like he finally sort of got over the hump and getting past his his federal habits and his likeness for that and built a true and a true Greek revival structure that had was a multipurpose building. It was a it was a church upstairs and there were you know shops and so forth on the street level. So it was a very inventive sort of building that had multiple purposes. And he died in 1845, apparently left his family fairly well off, largely because of his Greek revival books that had sold so well, you know, in the last 15 years of his life. What a story. Uh, he's a real Connecticut entrepreneur and innovator, to say the least. Lynn, we'll have full information about the upcoming symposium in our show notes with links. But could you tell us a little bit about uh, visiting the Phelps Hathaway house and where people can find information about touring that house? Oh, yes, Mary. Uh, we're just so delighted that the, the Phelps edition is available to see people walk by it day by day. Uh, but uh, we are located in Suffield on uh, South Main Street, and a lot of the information for the symposium is on our website at ctlandmarks.org slash symposium. And the event will be held in our um, 1867 barn, which represents another part of our, our property. So we're thrilled to have people be at the house and just take in this beauty 
and uh, acknowledge Benjamin, who at 21, his legacy is still going. That's great. And I know you have events all year long, wonderful gardening events, holiday events. So that's just a house not to be missed. I want to thank you both for being on the podcast today. And we look look forward to learning more about Asher Benjamin in the upcoming symposium. Thank you again. Thank, thank you, Mary. Mary. I want to thank my guests, William Renaro and Lynn Mervesh. To find out more about the upcoming events at the Phelps Hathaway House and Garden, go to ctlandmarks.org. And don't forget to register today for the upcoming Asher Benjamin Symposium at ctlandmarks.org. William Renaro's book, Asher Benjamin, American Architect, Author, Artist, is available on Amazon.com. Please go to our show notes for this episode for links for more information. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. Did you know that you can make a monthly donation to Grading the Nutmeg by setting it up once on our website? You can help us by donating directly to Grading the Nutmeg on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Click the donate button at the top, then look for the Grading the Nutmeg donation link at the bottom. Donations in any amount are really appreciated. We thank you. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at highwattagemedia.com. This is Mary Donahue. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history.